0: You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We're going to be in Judges chapters 4 and 5 this morning. We're really going to walk through uh, chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we're just going to read that towards the end before we make some application. But we're three uh, judges into the cycle already in this book when we get to chapter 4 this morning. And just as a quick recap for for those of us who have been here and just need to kind of get a refresher of where we are, but those of you who haven't been here, uh, just so you know what's going on in the book of Judges Uh, The Israelites have finally made it into the promised land. This is the land that that God told them was theirs after having been led there by Joshua. And God tells his people to do this thing, settle the land. This land is yours. All you need to do is remove the Canaanites uh, from among the land, which involves uh, getting rid of them. Just, Just get rid of the Canaanites. And they start to do that. And they're successful in some areas and with some of those people, but they actually never finished the job that God called them to do. God told them to do one thing. We've heard this over and over if you've been here, but they disobeyed. They didn't didn't finish the task that was before them. And so in chapter 2 of Judges, the Lord says, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them and of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations. So God gave them over to what they wanted. Hey, you want to you wanna mix in and intermingle with these other nations that I've told you not to, that I've told you to drive out of my land? Well, well, here they are, and here is your reward for doing that. I'm going to leave those nations to you. And so what happens at this point is that the Israelites begin to intermingle with the Canaanites, the exact opposite of what God wanted for them and what God told them to do. He wanted them to be an example To the nations. God wanted his people to be holy as he is holy. He wanted his people to be set apart for the nations. He wanted a people that delighted in following his commands, but they decided that there was a better way. And the better way for them was to bow down to the pagan gods of the land that they had found themselves in. A better way was not to completely obey the commandments of God. That a better way was to worship the Baals and the Asheroth. I told you I was going to say Baals. Whatever. And so you'll have to go back to last week to find out more about that. And so we see this theme developing in the book of Judges. The people begin to do what was evil In their own sight. And so the people find themselves in this cycle over and over and over again. And we see this judge's cycle occurring uh, to so many degrees. They rebel. God then becomes angry with his people. We see that they are oppressed by their enemies. They cry out in misery, and then God raises up a leader who is a judge, hence the name of the book, to bring salvation. And then God's people experience a time of peace, and then what happens? The judge dies. Every single time the judge dies. Last week, we looked at the first three judges, Aphmaiel, Ehud and Shamgar, and those judges are now gone. And so we pick up in Judges chapter 4. I'm going to read, if you find yourself in the text with me, the first three verses. Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, we're four chapters into the book, and we're already used to the Israelites' theme. Like, this is what they continue to do. What was evil in the sight of the Lord as soon as the judge dies. Look, they had one main responsibility. One main responsibility. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. To love God, to love him with everything. That was what was set before them. To love God alone. And yet, what did they love more? They loved their sin. They loved what they wanted to do. They loved their pleasure. They loved their comfort. And when the judge could no longer be found, they returned to that thing in which they loved the most. Family, as we walk through yet another painstaking passage in the book of Judges, would you ask God this morning by his Holy Spirit to reveal to you the things in which you love more than he? Like, what are the things in your life that you continue to go back to over and over and over again, that you know that you have this thing, this commandment that is set out before you, that you are to love the Lord your God alone, love him with everything that you have, and yet you you constantly find yourself. These are the things that come before him every day, every week, every, every month. Those places and things in which when no one else is around to remind you of who you've been called to be, what are those things that you keep heading back to? This time, as the Israelites reveled in their sin, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, who was, the text says, king of Canaan. And the commander of his army was named Sisera. Now, turn back to chapter 1 with me if you're in your Bible, to to verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. And this is where the Israelites, the people of God, were doing their initial settling and conquering. And it says here, verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. If God's people would have obeyed him when he said to obey him, would there be any chariots of iron in their way now? No. God said, settle the land. God said, get rid of the Canaanites. God said, the land is yours. All you have to do is remove them. And now all of a sudden, they find that these same people with the chariots of iron have now taken them into captivity. Once was theirs is now not theirs. They've been taken captive by these very people. But as we continue to see, God is merciful to his covenant people, and he will use their oppression to show them that they have a tremendous need for a savior. God's people endure 20 years of hardship before they cry out to him for help, and so God sends a judge. Verse 4, back in chapter 4. Now Deborah a prophetess, the wife of of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, "'Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, go, "'Gather your men at Mount Tabor, "'taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali "'and the people of Zebulun. "'And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, "'to meet you by the river Kishon "'with his chariots and his troops, "'and I will give him into your hand.' Barak said to her, "'If you will go with me, I will go.' But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now, Folks have used this very passage to build entire doctrines on men and women in ministry. Some have said that this is an indictment as to where the people of Israel are at already as a people, that they have no more men to lead, and so God uses a woman at this point in their history. But we need to see that this chapter and the next is really the extent of what we see about Deborah's rule and reign. So let, let us be quick as students of the Bible to use context here. What's, what's before and what's after this? What's going on in light of the entirety of Scripture here? So what do we know about Deborah? Well, we know that Deborah is a prophetess, one of five women that are prophets in, I believe, in the Bible. And while it might be so that there are no more men to lead in Israel at this very moment, We'll see some come later. It's also just fine that the Lord appointed a woman to lead here. You see, men and women are both created equally in the image of God, and yet, as equals, they have distinct callings in both the church and the home. But there is nothing in God's word that says that a woman cannot serve in a civil role of this kind. What we have is certainly another instance of perceived weakness leading the people, though. So when the people would see that a woman was leading them, they might, just like they did in our chapter last week when we saw uh, Ehud leading the people as a left-handed man, when people looked at him, what did they perceive? They perceived him to be weak. In fact, just to illustrate that again, if you weren't here last week, uh, last night, I went out axe throwing with a group of friends, okay? And I told those that were with us last week that I'm left-handed, okay? And, and the judge in our story last week was, was not a guy that people thought, man, you're a really strong guy. I get that about myself as well, okay? I also know that I'm left-handed. And so we're, we're throwing axes with a, a group of friends and the, the coach that was before us, he said, okay, everybody, we're, we're about to teach you some. There, there's nobody here that's left-handed, are you? And I was like, <laughs> man, already? Like in week one? And so I had to say that, and he was like, of course you are. You know, it, it's, just, it's just a stigma, okay? So that's the same thing that's happening already again in this particular passage. They see that Deborah, a woman, is leading. She's judging the people of God, and they would look at her and perceive her to be a weak woman, Certainly, this isn't the one that is going to lead us to victory. Certainly, this woman isn't one who is going to bring anything that God wants for us. But She was at the top. She was judging Israel, although her judging was different than the other judges that we have seen so far and the judges that we will see. Rather than judging with might as a warrior, as a a conqueror, Deborah judges with wisdom. You can imagine her among the Israelites as more of a traditional judge in a courtroom. And as she's judging, she sends for this man named Barak, the text says. And it seems as though she is repeating this very message to Barak like, you've heard this, Barak. The Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded you to fight this incredible army. And he has promised to give Sisera into your hand. We've heard this already in the book of Judges. This is yours. If you would just go out and do it, God has promised this to you. Just take them into your hands. Barak, this is already promised of the Lord. And Barak replies to Deborah, if you'll go with me, I'll go. If you won't go with me, I'm not going to go. And Deborah says she will, but notices this. I'll surely go, she says, but this won't lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. I'm going to go with you, but the glory is not going to be yours. Hold, hold on to that in the text this morning. And so they head out to battle, but, but not everyone, you see, because remember the Israelites are really good at excuses. Perhaps you can identify with that as well. The Israelites are really good at excuses. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, we see tribes not heeding the call to battle. Reuben had to stay back to watch the sheep. Gilead didn't want to cross the Jordan River. Dan had to stay with the ships. And Asher had to keep watch at the coast. God said he was going to give Sisera into their hands. Why wouldn't they go? Why wouldn't they go? Isn't this how we can be sometimes? God, I, I know that you have told me to go and make disciples of all nations, but someone is probably, even in my own chur- church, much more gifted at going and telling people about the gospel of Jesus. I know you've told me to do that, but somebody else is more gifted at that task. Lord, I, I know that you've empowered me by your spirit to preach the gospel, to go and tell other people about it, but today it's just a busy day. This week is just a really hectic week for me and my family. You know what? 2021, it, it's just really going to be another dumpster fire year, right? Man, we, we think things like that. We say things like that all the time. Just give me a little more time, Lord. Lord, I know that your word says that you're never going to leave me or forsake me, but I need my own time to spend time preparing for the worst. Give me some time to worry for me and you, God, you know? If you could just let me do this my own way. And so the Israelites continued to make excuses after excuses not to do the things that God had specifically commanded them to do. These tribes never got around to laying down their lives because it wasn't the right time, because it wasn't convenient, because they had other affairs that they had to attend to. Their excuses take us to the New Testament where Jesus is telling us the parable in Luke chapter 14 of the great banquet, where all of these guests are invited. And as soon as it's time for the guests to come into the banquet, they begin to, to phone in They say, you know what? I actually can't come because I just bought a field and I have to go see about my investment you know what, I actually just bought a yoke of oxen and I need to go make sure that they're all what I expected them to be. And my favorite, hey, I'm not gonna be able to come to the banquet tonight because I have a wife and you know how that goes. Jesus turns to a growing crowd after sharing that parable and he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple." Certainly we can identify with the Israelites, right? Man, we want to play it safe. We want to keep from getting bloody. We want to make sure that our lives are nice and organized, that they fit into the box that we have created for ourselves. And yet God has already prepared and solidified salvation for his people. They just wouldn't go. Several weeks ago, It seemed like this was also a theme at the beginning of the book of Judges. And it it seemed to be over and over that it wasn't that the people couldn't obey. It's that they wouldn't obey. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. You're not willing. Okay. Time to pick up the pace. Verse 11, now Heber, the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanaman, which is near Kadesh. And this seems to be a random detail, but we'll come back to it in just a moment. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, there they are again, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from Harashef, Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now, most of us aren't used to, we we'll pause there for just a second, thinking about military tactics from the ancient Near East, are we? okay? But you tell me, if we're just thinking about terrain for just a moment, if you're thinking about chariots of iron, are they going to do better in a mountainous terrain where it's incredibly rocky and there's not a ton of visibility, or are they going to do better on a place that is dry and flat? Which one? Dry and flat. That's exactly right, okay? See, we're we're pros at this. That's exactly what they would have all thought. Okay? So you you would have thought Barack is thinking, wait, wait, this doesn't seem to be the best plan. We're in the mountains. We should have God, God, hey, just listen to me for one second. You should have them come up to the mountains so that we could defeat them up there. But no, it's gonna be the opposite way. When Barack hears this command, he must have thought that this was insane. We have a much greater advantage. In the mountains, if there is to be one. Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. I don't know what just happened in this turn of events yet in the text, but all of a sudden it seemed like it worked out the way that God had intended it, right? That's all we need to know. Verse 16, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth, Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Barak followed the command, knowing the Lord had gone before him, and victory was his. And the only person that had gotten away was Sisera. Verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Now, back to verse 11, that seemingly random piece of information is, but here's Heber again, who had moved away from all of the other people in his clan, the Kenites, who knows why, except now we see that God was providentially moving this particular man and his wife away from his people for this very moment. Verse 18, And Jael, Heber's wife, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Now, it's not exactly what you and I think as a living room rug. That sounds like something someone would not accept, okay? But but nevertheless, she covers him as an act of hospitality and he accepts that gracious act. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. Now, this reminds us of the Judge Ehud last week, doesn't it? Because when people looked at Ehud, they thought, man, this man is incredibly weak. When King Eglon looked at Ehud, he said, there's no way that this guy is out to get me. And so when Ehud turns around at the idols of Gilgal and he says, hey, King Eglon, I actually have a secret message for you. King Eglon sends all of his attendants away, doesn't he? And it's just King Eglon and Judge Ehud And Ehud all of a sudden destroys King Eglon because Eglon was unsuspecting. So here we are yet again. Jael is a woman and Sisera has come to a peaceful ground. So he thinks. He's found a safe haven in the moment. He can finally get some rest, verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Uh, And just so you know, that this is really just a modern home appliance, okay? Uh, For the woman in this day and time, it was her specific responsibility as the clans would move around. It was her responsibility to pitch the tents and to make sure that they would continue with their stability. So this is just a modern home appliance that Jael picks in her hand. She takes a tent peg and she takes a hammer in her hand She's holding this household appliance, and the text continues. Then she softly, then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And the most obvious part, so he died. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I'm gonna show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, here's the deal. We could ask all sorts of moral and ethical questions at this point in the Bible. But we must remember that there is a difference between what God says in his word and what he supports. Difference between what is reported and what is recommended. The point of this story is not even here in this moment to raise or solve a moral dilemma, but it is absolutely, don't miss this, it is to celebrate Yahweh's salvation power. That's the point of the story. That God said he was going to save his people. That God said he was going to protect his people. That God said that he was going to give his people a particular place so that they could spread and make his glory known to the rest of the world. And he is doing it because God is always faithful to his people. God is always faithful to his promises. That's the point of the story at this point. God has done this. He's delivered Sisera's army into the hands of the Israelites. King Jabin is no longer a threat. God has answered yet again the groanings of his people. He's mercifully delivered his people from their oppressors, and they can experience rest. Okay, now for chapter 5 which we've read a few verses from already, but here's the deal. We walked through chapter 4. It was the narrative account of the battle. It's exactly what was taking place with the people of God. But chapter 5 is called The Song of Deborah and Barak. And it's just a a poetic version of what has happened in chapter 4. Chapter 4 mentions the Lord just a few times. Chapter 5, it's all about what God has done. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to read it. Okay, And you're going to hear this, for those of you who are like, man, I didn't understand poetry in 10th grade, it's, it's going to be a little better than that. Okay, But just go along with me. This is a poetic version of what has just happened in chapter 4. This is what God was doing the entire time. Then saying, verse 1, Deborah, chapter 5, and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, In the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates, march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down march the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty from Ephraim their root. They marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak into the valley. They rushed at his heels. Jump to verse eighteen. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field, the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan, at Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horses' hoofs, with the galloping, galloping of the steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell where he sank. There he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess's answer, indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoiled of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck of spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O oh Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So so we've walked through now chapters 4 and 5, what, what piercing truths, if you will, can we learn from these chapters? The first is this, I want us to see as we, we close today and as we leave here this morning, that God is always working to fulfill his good purpose. God is always working to fulfill his good purpose. Philippians 2.13 tells us just that. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we know that God told the Israelites to settle the land. He said it was theirs. Joshua led them to defeat Ai. He led them to defeat Jericho. They even saw his complete hand in it. And yet, when Joshua died, the people turned inward. They turned into themselves. What do do we want? And then the next generation didn't remember God, as we saw earlier in the book. They didn't remember anything that God had done. And so God said, remove the Canaanites, but they came up against obstacles. Some of them wouldn't leave. They thought in other places that they could use the Canaanites and the people in the lane of Canaan for their economic advantage, that they would use them for slaves. Hey, God, I know that you told us to remove them, but we're going to use these people instead. Or remember, when they came up against all those iron chariots. They knew that they couldn't defeat them. They thought that they couldn't defeat them. The people endure years and years of oppression when they finally come up against these warriors with chariots of iron again. And we see Barak even looking disadvantaged in chapter 4, leaving the mountains to head to the river basin. He thought, there is no way that leaving the mountains are going to give us any advantage in defeating these people. But the Lord gave them victory despite the terrain. How? Chapter 5 shows us, beginning in verse 4, we just read it, that the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. So how does God in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and kindness to his covenant people give the Israelites victory over the Canaanites? He sends rain. He sends a flood. He makes that place in which was perfect ground for the chariots of iron to just have their way, to destroy every person that was around them. He made that flat, dry soil into mud and slosh so that when the army of Sisera came and had their chariots of iron on top of that mud, they were stuck. And Sisera's army fell, leaving Sisera in his chariot of iron to get out of his chariot and to run miles and miles away on foot. And he thought that he was running to a safe place, to a refuge, to to a camp that he had already made peace with, a refuge that wasn't an Israelite saw that Cicero was losing, and Jael and her husband turned on him. So who's the real hero of this story? Well, it's not Barak, because Deborah already said that the glory is not going to go to you. It's not Deborah. She isn't fighting. And it's not even Jael. She just has one piece in the puzzle. The hero here. And we must not miss this in the entire book of Judges. The hero here is God alone. God alone is the savior of his people. God alone is the rescuer of his covenant people. And he's always working to fulfill his good purposes on behalf of them. So you may not see that the road that he has already paved for you. But his word assures us that as his children, it is for our good and his ultimate glory. Take heart in that good news today, disciple of Jesus. There are moments in life when we're fearful of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Like moments like the disciples who found themselves in the middle of the sea, when everything seems like it was going to be lost and they find that Jesus is asleep and they wake him up. Jesus, we're so scared. What are you going to do? And Jesus wakes up and he says just a few simple words, peace, be still, and everything is calm. It all stops. Now, the storm wasn't going to take them down. The storm was placed there by God, who is sovereign, who says, I am in control of every single thing in this entire cosmos, If you would just see it, that he's the one in control of all things, that the idols that we give ourselves to have absolutely no control over our lives, that we might run and cling to Christ. Second, that God blesses obedience and he curses spectators. Hear this first. As we we flesh that out, salvation comes from God and God alone. You do not, nor can you, earn salvation based on any effort of your own. There is no way that any amount of your own good effort or good deeds could get you into heaven before our Father on the final day. No amount of good works on your behalf will convince the Father to say to you, well well done, my good and faithful servant. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by recognizing that Jesus Christ, who is God, became a man, that he lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could not live, that he died on behalf of sinners, he was raised to life on the third day, and that through him and through him alone can you have forgiveness of sins. Salvation comes from God, and yet, as we see in the passage this morning, God's people are not to sit idly by. They're not to sit idly by. God is always working to fulfill his good purposes, and he often uses his people to do it. God uses us to fulfill his purposes. In chapter 5, verse 23, we see in the song, Curse Marah," says the angel of the Lord curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. It's not that they were necessarily doing anything wrong. It's that the people here were doing nothing. That they were sitting idly by We keep seeing the cycle of pressurized piety, if you will, with the Israelites. When the judge leads the people into victory and there is rest in the land, then they follow God. Then they give God good things because he seems to be giving them what they want in that moment. But as soon as the judge dies, what do they do? They go back to serving the idols of the land. They go back to doing exactly what they wanted to do in the beginning. Is this you? Are you a Christian by profession of faith only, but your heart is actually far from God, never having been transformed by the Holy Spirit? The gospel would say, repent of your sins. Pray today that God would give you a new heart to worship, that God would give you a new heart to serve and to love and to worship him. You need to be born again. If you find yourself only doing the right things, If you find yourself only obeying God when certain people are watching, then beware. Jesus often says to his disciples in the Gospels, come and follow me. Some of us need to stop watching and listening and begin following. It's a difficult road, but it is a blessed one. Chapter 4, verse 24, we see there. Sorry, this is chapter 5, verse 24. We see... Most blessed of women be Jael. The only other person in all of the scripture that that very phrase is used of is the Virgin Mary. Mary who birthed Jesus. You see, in Mary's story, she found herself as a pregnant virgin. She had absolutely no ability to defend herself when other people asked how she had become pregnant. Her character was on the line. Her standing in the community was on the line. In fact, Joseph, her betrothed, was even confused when he first found out about it. What does Mary do? She just surrenders. God doesn't need an army to succeed. He will use just a housewife with a tent peg. God desires that you just obey. Third, God promises to right every wrong. And we'll close with this. The atheist worldview says that we must be the bearers of the burden of justice. That we must bear that out through vengeance. If I'm going to have to pay for something, then you're going to have to pay for it too. But in the gospel of Jesus, it's all flipped. All the wrongs are righted. Those who who are Christ have had their wrongs placed upon Christ himself. Jesus took our sin debt upon himself on the cross and he paid the weight of them all. And so for the Christian, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has fundamentally changed the way in which we view our enemies. Every sin committed against me, every sin committed against you, follower of Jesus, has either been paid for Jesus on the cross or will be paid for by that individual for all of eternity. So we have no need to walk around with tent pegs, driving them through the skull of every single person who hurts us. May we heed that this morning. God, instead of driving the tent peg that I deserved into my head, drove it through the hands and feet of his son, Jesus Christ. And so as a result, when Jesus Christ returns one day, and he will, all oppression will be ended. Justice will be restored. The sun will melt away the ice and fog of injustice and hate. Every single tear will be wiped away, and all things will be new. There will be no sun or moon because there will be no more darkness any longer. If you are in Christ, you have the ability to celebrate that coming day. And we celebrate that now and throughout all eternity. And if you are not, would you heed the warnings of the scriptures today? Would you repent of your sins and trust Christ today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good, that you are merciful to your people, that you have shown us a way out of our sin, out of our misery, and that you have given us a way to be made right, to have fellowship with you because of the sacrifice of your son Christ Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And it was there that he exchanged my sin for his righteousness, for anyone who would trust in Christ Jesus by faith. And God, I pray if there's an individual here this morning or watching this morning and they've never trusted in Christ Jesus by faith, that they might do that today, that you might give them a new heart, that they might be born again so that they could walk in repentance and belief. God, I pray for us as your children that you might show us your good purpose in our lives, that you're in control of all things, that you've given us salvation, and that you're working all things according to your will and your good purposes for your great glory. Would that give us confidence in today? Would that give us great confidence and hope for tomorrow? And God, as your people together, we long for the return of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. (laughs) you <laughs>